Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. This week, I'm joined with our senior editor, Jessica Condit, to talk about games. Hey, Jess. Hello. Happy to talk about games. Happy to have you here. And also, since we're talking about games, uh, podcast producer Ben Ellman is also going to chime in about his experience with uh, Armored Core 6. It's Ben time once again. Ready for it. (laughs) It's mech time. It's Ben time. Thank you both for joining for this episode. So yeah, we're going to have a bunch of game news and there's some other news to dive into. I just want to say heads up, uh, if you're looking for an iPhone preview, by the way, check out last week's episode. We had Mark Ehrman on from Bloomberg and we had a really good chat. Um, I think he even like basically gave us some details on things that I never even knew about. He mentioned a uh, lightning connector 12 inch MacBook that I had never heard of, even though I've been writing about you know, Apple rumors forever. So that's a great episode. Check that out. And we're all preparing for the iPhone event next week. So stay tuned to Gadget. We'll also likely have a a mini podcast right after the Apple event on Tuesday. So watch out for that. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. We always love getting feedback and questions from you guys. And I want Asking Gadget to be a returning segment in the podcast. So send us your questions. I love digging into things and researching and helping people out on the show. So reach out to us, podcastandgadget.com. Jess, we've been wanting to talk with you for a while because of Starfield. Starfield is finally out for everybody. It was a bit of a staggered launch, right? It was out for, uh, you know, premium uh, people who bought the premium pass or Game Pass subscribers who bought the premium expansion. Uh, I, I also did that and I'll talk about why I did that. But I bought that last week. And as of this week, as of this recording, it's open to everybody. It's uh, on Game Pass. Um I saw your review, Jess. I was eagerly awaiting your perspective and a lot of other, you know, folks. And your title, I think, really says it all. Um, Starfield review. You will like some of it. So, hundred percent. That seems very clear from me to you. You will like some <laughs> of it. Yes. <laughs> can you can you boil down what do you mean by you will like some of it? Yeah, I mean, I truly think that this game has enough stuff in it that everyone who plays it will eventually find some loop that they really like, you know, whether that's buying a condo on a planet and just kind of living a life there or paying your mortgage. No, truly though. (laughs) Hey, yo, don't, don't knock it. Okay. I'm on neon. I'm I'm living that in real life. It's not fun. No, like I'm, yeah, I'm having a good time living on neon doing corporate espionage for a tech company there. And then, like, other people will really get into the ship stuff. Other people will really like exploring the planets. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff to do. Um, but you may have to play 10, 20, 40 hours of a game that you just kind of like to get to the thing that, you know, is actually will keep you coming back. Um, yeah, it's not it's not a terrible game by any means. Bethesda knows how to make a game. Um, but it's it's classic Bethesda, for better or worse. I I didn't you know I have I have a lot of thoughts about like the narrative and the sci-fi nature of this game. So we can talk about that a little more specifically. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a it's a game that has something for everyone, but it's not really a coherent experience on its own. I would say. What what do you think after playing? You've played like dozens of hours at this point, right? 
I have not dozens, uh, maybe okay. up to a dozen. Um, I've had it for a week and I normally don't have time to like dive into games, but it's just been, I've, I've just cleared out everything I do at night and just be like, I'm, I'm going to spend some Starfield time whenever I can. So I've put in maybe 10, 10, maybe 12 hours at this point. I will say, um, I, yeah, I also have complicated feelings about this game because I do think the sci-fi setting is so generic. Um, I, I have been trying to chase the the experience I had with the first Mass Effect for so long, and certainly Mass Effect Two, I think, kind of hit that really well. We we just have not gotten there. Like even the Mass Effect people couldn't make another great Mass Effect after Andromeda um, or with Andromeda. Um, I think this world is really empty. I don't get the sort of like adventuring experience I'd expect from a space game because it relies so much on fast travel to move to different places. Um, you know, it's it's really weird and inert is a word I think you use. And it just kind of feels that way for me. Um, at the same time, I, I can't stop playing it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is it is kind of disappointing on so many levels. And I'm like, well, it's space shit. And I like space shit. And it's actually pretty pretty decent space shit um, coming from Bethesda. And we should probably take a step back and explain. Like, this game is basically um, Fallout in space. That's what it feels like to me. It, and Fallout has typically been you in a, you know, uh, apocalyptic landscape where you're free to do things, collect weapons, make friends, fight people, talk with people. You're doing all that. And the apocalyptic hellscape does actually exist here, too. Uh, but you're also doing it in space and you're traveling around. You're having, you know, enter, you're having dogfights outside of planets. You're, um, it's just expanding that sort of universe too. I, I think the scope of it is kind of incredible, but it is funny to see this game come out and be like, well, hey, you can explore the cosmos. You can do anything. And No Man's Sky is there and has been steadily getting better and better, I think, over the years have, from a launch disappointment to, a game that I think has so many cool things in it. It's incredible, and you can play it in VR, and I play with my daughter sometimes just to wander around planets. It's so full of life and so interesting. This game is just not. And that's kind of disappointing to me. Which seems really fascinating to me, because you were saying that it feels very sterile, it feels very kind of empty and things, which is the opposite of what you think about when you think about Fallout. You think about... Fallout being like feeling very lived in, feeling like there is life in Megaton and the characters, man, they pop. I haven't heard anything about really anyone being excited about any of the Starfield characters. Like they, they, they were characters. excited about Three Dog or like they, they're they excited the about bad. The writing in this game is not good. No, it just isn't. It's and bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's from it's from the wider stories to the individual dialogue lines. You don't connect with anyone because there's nothing really to connect with. They're kind of shoehorning emotion in the main storyline at parts. And it just doesn't, it doesn't ever ring true. But again, it's, it's just like, okay, I'll skip this dialogue. Yeah, just get through it. You know, I'll do the it, persuasion it, which is thing. Sad. And I like that thing. It's, like, I think that is sad. I, I totally agree. It's sad. It's it feels like sad. they yada yada a lot of the great early stuff that should be in a, in a, you know, major narrative like this. Um, Whereas this one's like, I think within 30 minutes, you're like, oh, yeah, you're very special. Uh, yada, yada, yada. You have this connection to, oh, ancient stone. Cool. Let's go collect more ancient stones. Oh, you're very important. You're going to join the organization now. It really whisks you through a lot of things. And your character just has no sense of life or agency of their own. And the characters you're introduced to are all pretty boring. And yeah, you got to find that loop. It takes like, it took me like five hours to be like, oh, I, I can actually do cool things. I can zip around. And if I see an enemy ship land near me, I could just like sneak over there and take that ship. And that was cool. 
But at the same time, there are these weird, like, world-breaking things that just don't don't make any sense, right? Characters at major uh, headquarters of, you know, political organizations um, just sit around waiting for you to talk to them. You know, they don't they don't appear as if they're doing anything else. Uh, I saw people talk about this on Twitter, but there's, uh, you know, the president of one of those uh, organizations. It's just the top floor, that building. You can walk over there, walk right into their office. You don't even um, have to have, do any, like, quests no, in order to, like, get an no, access card or anything walk like over that? There. Okay. You can walk over there and shoot her in the head, you know? And there's no security there. There's no nothing. Once you start that, then, yeah, everyone's like, oh, my God. How did this happen? How did this very preventable situation happen? Because we had no security. And then, um, unfortunately, yeah. then you're trapped in a combat loop, which is not satisfying. <laughs> the combat in yes. this game is also trash. <laughs> like, straight up, it's, it's not I, good. Okay, and I, I was just watching some videos before we started recording about, uh, like, the combat. And what made Fallout very satisfying is that it had, like, a kind of combination between, like, turn-based combat and like live first person shooter stuff because you had vats because you could stop everything and choose to shoot a certain limb or something and maybe you'd miss and then you'd have to figure something out in real time but this is just like you're kind of shooting at people and they ragdoll in the bethesda way and that's it it's it's, bad. it's not bad i did hear stories that i, I don't know if you saw this jess that maybe you can unlock some sort of like time slowing down localizing feature for shooting later later on i think maybe well, a skill lock yeah mm -hmm. you you gather abilities over time right so you do get more like kind of magical ish powers as time goes on and there are there are mods you can equip there are items you can use that like make you move faster whatever um but no it's there's no vats here and then the the bullet sponges that just drop in randomly these like over leveled random characters that you have to be like why isn't this this one dying but this one that looks exactly the same is dying in two hits the and number it, it is just, higher yeah. it's just really like it's just odd and it's not it feels like combat did not need to be as big a part of this game as it is and if they had maybe if bethesda had focused on a loop that was actually enjoyable or something innovative anything innovative Maybe this could have been a better experience, you know, for, for me, for what I'm looking for. I mean, we're I, talking, I think, mm -hmm. like, all the games we've mentioned, like, comparing this to, I, I specifically think this is Fallout 4 in space, right? It's Fallout 4 specifically in space. And Bethesda's been making this since Fallout 4 landed, seven years. Um, and this game, it... Okay, I lost my train of thought, actually. <laughs> and Fallout 4, by the way, I should just say, was kind of a disappointment, I think, for a lot of people after Fallout 3, after yeah, New Vegas, yeah. like which were so narratively rich and so many cool things exactly. were happening in those games. Fallout 4 was just kind of like, is that the one where Liam Neeson is your dad? Or the voice in, in it or something? I don't know. The but um, that's exactly what people say when they talk about Fallout 4. They talk ab about like very specific experiences and how much they loved certain characters in Fallout 3 and New Vegas especially. Like New Vegas... Yeah. Yeah, uh, cult hit. So, but Fallout Four is like, oh yeah, is that the 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 next one? Is that the one where there's like like guys in tri corner hats or something? And then people are like, oh yeah, Fallout seventy six also happened, I guess. It's right. it's funny. So I, I think part of the problem is this game's coming out after no, you know uh, No Man's Sky had so much time to first of all stumble and get a lot of criticism early on, but also those developers have doubled down and have put so much into that game. Um, where anybody buying that today gets such a rich and deep experience. It's so cool. You could just travel the cosmos on your Switch on multiple devices. Um, it's it's like a really cool experience. But, and also, yeah. 
other games like uh, Outer Worlds have landed, which came from X Fallout developers, and they made a very cool, uh, narratively rich uh, Fallout game in space. And it's not as expansive as this. You're not going to like so many planets, but the characters are strong. The events are strong, right? I've heard nothing so, but good things about the mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the writing's great in Outer in Outer Worlds and and Outer Wilds, by the way. And Outer Wilds, that well, but that's a different <laughs> we'll game. That. But yeah. no, all these games we're talking about are are the better version of Starfield of the things you can do in Starfield. Everything in Starfield exists in another game in a more concentrated, more coherent form. And like, if you yeah, if you like the exploration and in Starfield, play No Man's Sky and you're gonna you're gonna have a great time. And like the thing with the thing with that is No Man's Sky from the beginning, when it launched, it had a clear identity, it had a clear loop, it had mechanics that made a lot of sense and they were contained. And that's why that game got better. This this game is not is not that. This is this is just a triple A big world bomb that we got right and it's just it's kind of it's kind of expansive but it also feels lifeless and empty like i don't know if you saw that twitch streamer that just tried to just, fly yeah, to fly pluto to or whatever yeah mm-hmm. and and just ended up after seven hours of flying straight toward it flying through a texture as the planet and like which which is yeah yeah I sorry understand, that so. wouldn't happen that wouldn't happen in no man's sky because they knew what they were doing and they focused on it and they did it and it's the same with like destiny when it launched not many people were very hyped on destiny when it launched but it had a loop that some people were like there it is that's the game and it just got but better destiny, from there. destiny needed a sequel to get really good right it needed one dlc to get great and then the sequels were i think a lot but of they had in. they had yeah. that focus from the beginning and that's what people respond to i think yeah Focus is the key word here, I'd say. But yeah, uh, traveling around the cosmos in No Man's Sky, you feel like, oh, you're actually traveling through space. Whereas I think Starfield's thing is like, yeah, space is actually pretty boring and there's not much to do in between sequences. So there is a realism to this of like traveling for seven hours and not really encountering anything because space is big and empty and vast. Then we shouldn't see any stars when we're out. When I'm outside of a planet in space... we shouldn't see any start that that messed me up because i was like if we're actually going to do this you want to make me feel alone empty in space why do i see a thousand stars in every frame when i'm out that's just not how it would be and it actually makes it feel yeah like more fake more like set dressing more fake yeah Yeah. i think the thing about these games is like you could always be like oh that building way off in the distance looks really cool i'm gonna walk to it and maybe something cool will be there and this game has a lot of that except there's just nothing there there's nothing i have I've enjoyed exploring some of the planets, but it's sort of like you run into the same sort of like pirate camps or some things to deal with. Um, I will, there are a few great moments I had. Um, I think early on, within two hours, I was able to like travel around. Uh, I had a mission that sent me to Mars. So I was like, okay, I'm going to check out the solar system, see how things are going. So I transported to Earth. And you're you're basically fast traveling everywhere. You just in the map menu, which is terrible, by the way. I don't know what's up with the menus in this game, but everything is awful. Um, but I was like, okay, let's let's go to Earth. Let's go nearby Earth and see what's up. And you get there, and you're confronted with an ashen desert hellscape. And that kind of I didn't expect that because nobody really talked about it. But I figured, yeah, sure, something's wrong with Earth. But yeah, it's just desert. No blue, no nothing. And that kind of I did have a gasp moment there. So I was like, okay, I gotta go check this out. And then I landed on Earth, and it's just like a giant desert. It is, I don't know, a couple miles away from your house in in Arizona, Jess. Like, it just... Truly. <laughs> lifeless, barren, and that kind of broke my heart a little bit. Like, it is sort of like this... The, the game isn't 
presenting me a storyline about this yet. I'm sure we'll have to do something on Earth eventually. But just seeing that made me very sad, especially where we are now after the hottest summer ever recorded, the hottest year ever recorded, you know, temperature wise. Jess is in the middle of a desert. I'm in a very humid zone over here. And the way we've had to survive over the past year just feels very harsh and a sign of like things to come. So seeing that barren, deserted Earth broke my heart. And I think that was a cool thing in this game. But that was like, you know, one minute from several hours. Jess, you reacted differently to Mm -hmm. Barren Deserted Earth. Tell us about that. I also found moments of beauty in this game, right? There are definitely parts where I was like, damn, that looks good, even on Xbox Series S. Uh, it, It looks cool. And it's, yeah, you know, that was a cool scene to, there is a narrative point in the main quest where you go to Earth. And it's, it, you know, yeah, it's interesting to see the planet that way. But... It's nothing we haven't seen in other sci-fi stories. I guess to me, I I really do enjoy a sci-fi world that makes me think about what we're doing now, how we're living now, what, you know, what the future actually holds, like new ideas about how we might be living. And Starfield doesn't offer anything there. There's truly I don't I can't pick out one new idea gameplay-wise or narrative-wise. Uh, that that makes this an, a unique, interesting piece of sci-fi. And that's really disappointing to me. I mean, I feel like if you had seven years to craft a, a an arching story about the universe and, and humanity's place in it, there's there. I mean, the possibilities are endless. Right. And we just got a lot of stuff we've seen before. Um, and that's that's just disappointing. I really expected more there. I truly did. And and that really let me down. It's kind of it's the opposite of sci-fi it, to to be so derivative side plane truly the opposite yeah Yeah, it's very science vanilla i don't know um yeah but the thing like i think what we're saying though is like it gets the basics down enough where like okay this is scratching an itch where i'm like okay i i do like flying around you know different stars was like okay i'm gonna map my way to this uh far off solar system i like seeing what alien planets look like and the way they kind of uh build those things um so you know, in that respect, I think it's totally fine. I'm going to say something that is going to be really disappointing to Microsoft, which is it doesn't seem like I need to participate in this Xbox generation at all then. If this is your big exclusive. So is this a big disappointment for Microsoft or is this going to like be kind of a hit with Game Pass? What do you think? Yep. Hit with Game Pass. Yeah. This is a That's fine all, game. If if you're already on Game Pass, this this game is landing day and date. Play it. Have fun. It's a big, expansive world that you're already paying for. Why not? So I, I don't think it'll be a loss because Microsoft is now counting success in terms of playtime, not like units sold, right? So as long as they have people playing 10 hours of this game, like every Game Pass user plays a few hours or up, you know, 10 hours, 40 hours, That's I think that's a success for Microsoft. But I don't think it... I don't think it portends good things for Bethesda as a studio, as as its own thing inside of Microsoft. Or even Microsoft as a whole. We we talked about Redfall, right? We talked about Redfall, and you were also like, hey, this is a fine Game Pass game. Perfectly fine for Game Pass, and that's it, you know? But then does that contribute to the like Netflixification of video games where at least for Microsoft, yes. For well, so many yeah. like Netflix shows or, or honestly streaming shows in general, there's something that feels like diet soda about them. 
There's something hey, don't that knock feels soda. Okay. okay, but there's Diet something that life. there's something that feels a little bit aspartame, a little bit like this is almost good but not quite like that's really open excellent. world AAA games nowadays. Like that's that's I think that's more a symptom of yeah the funding structure that allows these these billion dollar companies to be focused on the profit line, and that's how we get games focused on the wrong things, right? And that's that's just kind of that system. I think the Netflixification of games for now for indie studios is actually working out really well, but we have to keep an eye on it. Because Which is we to know say actually working run. for Netflix. <laughs> no, it is. No, Netflix is killing it yeah. with indie games right now. Um, yeah, seriously, if you have Netflix, go check out their games. Play Kentucky Route Zero, please. Um, but yeah, it's. I do think that Game Pass has the potential to to get to that point right but for now i see smaller studios taking advantage of the opportunities they've been given the triple a studios are still stuck in this rut of trying to offer us big empty worlds full of very little to do with bad writing and i'm just i'm pretty sick of it personally yep totally agree and by the way other games that are i think outer worlds was on game pass i'm not sure if it's still on game pass but if you have a chance, it's probably you'll probably find it on sale. If you want like the good, well-written Fallout experience, check that out. Yeah, Wilds, I really want to play it. It's just yeah, the port on Switch is bad, so I got to find another. You got to. I mean, start clouds. Yeah. yeah, start cloud streaming, man. That's the other thing I think That's Microsoft true. has bet a lot on is that yeah, you you just need a controller and a computer with a screen. And you could stream from the cloud to your to your thing. That apparently, um, there were reports that that was kind of breaking down with Starfield. Like everybody was trying to cloud stream Starfield, which is a good sign for Microsoft, but a bad sign that their infrastructure couldn't hold it. Uh, we also mentioned Outer Wilds, which is this really cool like ex space exploration game um, that is basically based on a time loop, and you're solving a mystery. There's no like the narrative is so fascinating and cool, and you just kind of have to explore it, but also gets to really uh, scary aspects of of traveling space. Like you're basically racing against the star exploding. And I remember landing on a planet in that game where it had like 50 foot tall waves or something on the planet. Just like being in that environment kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, I would love to see more of that from Starfield eventually. Okay, so let's move from a big world full of seemingly lifeless mannequins to something that's been received as a very hearty, nutritious meal. Let's talk about Baldur's Gate 3. These are two very different games. Yes, they're both role-playing, but Baldur's Gate is turn-based. It is completely based on D&D, all the way down to the fact that you're doing virtual D20 roles. Jess, tell us more about it, because you're the only one of this trio that has actually played it. Oh, no, I haven't played it. I'm just telling people to play it. <laughs> <laughs> we all want to play it. We all want to play okay, it. Okay, so no, here's a question. No, Why a haven't preview. we played it? <laughs> well, because I play D&D. So I'm good. Okay. Oh, but, man, well, yeah. But if, yeah, it, this is like, this is the game where I saw enough people loving this game that when my friends who like D&D were asking me, should I play this? I was like, absolutely. Give it a go and give Larian Studios some money. Yeah. yeah why not? Seems like D&D, the game, basically. It is wild that it, this game has been development for so long, too, and it's coming out so close to Starfield. I will tell you guys, um, there are things I want to, to like about this, but I have not had a great experience with like PC RPGs that are based on D&D. I got into like Neverwinter Nights when that first came out. It was just like never quite hit 
the way I want it to. So I think eventually I will be in the vibes. I will feel the vibe to check out Baldur's Gate 3, but I I chose to go Armored Core 6. I chose to go Starfield. Like I wanted space and science fiction before I wanted, um, you know, some some of this RPG stuff. Plus I'm playing a bunch of other stuff, which we'll talk about. Um, but just we can we can compare the kind of release of Baldur's Gate 3 and Starfield. Like Baldur's Gate was in early access for years. Right. Like people have been talking about this for a while, but it was just the first chapter. Right. Well, OK, so I'm curious um, about especially like Ben, your your comparison points between Starfield and Baldur's Gate and why early access might be the thing there, because in my mind and how I see early access play out is it's mostly it's a tool for smaller developers. It's a marketing tool. It's a funding tool. Mostly it's something that you do when you need to generate more money for your game while you're building it. And also generate some hype. You know, all these things that like Starfield didn't need to do because they had millions of dollars of marketing money behind them. Um, And they could just, yeah, develop for seven years without running out of money. No problem. That's, you know, for Larian Studios, the Baldur's Gate people, they went into early access because they needed funding. (laughs) Like that, you know, they needed funding. They needed um, they needed hype. And it worked out and it works out for a lot of games, especially, you know, these indie games that do it. Um, Smaller games, I'll say. Like Hades, a bunch of those. Exactly. Well, okay, but that's Mm -hmm. the question. Did Supermassive really need to do early access as a method for funding? Because they did pretty well with their previous games. That's a broader discussion, but yeah. Absolutely. Well, if you're paying your people well and you have a a budgeting plan that factors in, okay, we're going to release this game, it's going to make this much money. And like, I, I truly believe early access sales were built into their budget. Yeah. And that's, as, to, as pay, that's to pay everyone a fair yeah. salary. Excuse me, that's yeah. super giant. I, super massive is a different super, thing. It's a su- super giant, you're right. <laughs> but compared to getting funding, like VC funding or private investment or something, I think it totally makes more sense to be like, hey, just, just help us crowdfund this thing. We've seen Kickstarters and other things being used to act, not just cr- make a project actually happen but to help build a project as they're moving i have to say part of that though it's like it is sort of like you're building a plane as you're trying to take it you know take it off as you're trying to lift off so there are potential issues around that i mean i'm seeing from people who are playing Baldur's gate 3 that the the subsequent chapters are less polished than chapter one which they have spent years refining and like people who've done the end game for that say like it's not it's not as good as like when it began. So I feel like they'll just continue to polish it over time. And maybe overall, that'll be a more cohesive uh, narrative all the way through. That seems like a problem, though, if you're playing the game right now, or maybe a disappointment. Or maybe it's just a platform for DLC down the line. You know, it's like, but I under I agree that, hey, if you're releasing a game, it should be the best you can offer all the way through. Absolutely. It would be nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. it would be nice. So getting back to the idea of building the plane while you're flying it or flying the plane while you're building it or however you want to say, this is something that I'm super curious about. Jess, do you have any insight into whether or not like games in early access crunch less or is it all crunch? Uh, no. So like crunch isn't inherent in this industry, right? It's something that studios choose to do. And it's something that a lot of AAA studios have gotten used to, which is why it's such a such so endemic. Um, But especially smaller studios generally have better workflows. There's definitely crunch in indie studios. But the ownership is different over the game. The people building on these smaller teams actually generally have 
more ownership over what they're actually building and they care a little a little more about the writing they're doing because they're the only one writing it or they're the only one making that asset or they're the only one that thought of that mechanic and they were actually allowed to put it in the game instead of being shot down by Todd Howard um okay I don't know what Todd Howard did on Starfield to be fair but there are I would love by the way just to go back to Starfield for one second if someone is playing every time you see a character that looks like Todd Howard just take a screenshot make an X thread or, or whatever. Like I need to see all the Todd Howards in Starfield. Cause there are so many, it was ridiculous. Okay. Either way. There, there were, there were other problems with Starfield too. I believe like one of the collaborators passed away who had been working on the game, like passed away, I think before the release of the game too. So I don't know like how much energy and how much that hurt the team and everything going mm-hmm. on there, but yeah, man. There, yeah. there are issues. Yeah. One but, would yeah, think it, that the loss mm-hmm. of even a critical developer would not keep a game from having a complete lack of point of view. Cause, Except they I were mean, a creative lead. So it's like, well... Mm. But the more direct comparison, now that we're, we're getting off of Baldur's Gate, but I want to talk about early access a little bit more. If you've been in development for this long, how do you not have a point of view? We're making the comparison between Starfield and um, the Outer Worlds. It's all point of view. It's a very political game. How do you not have any kind of even like attempt at politics in this huge game? Well, actually, I I, answered my own question. It's a huge game, and maybe they're trying to please everyone. I think that that's ultimately it. Like, the goal is to make big game rather than, yeah, make money, make big game, and also rather than say anything clearly. And even then, you have uh, streamers screeching about how uh, you can use gender-neutral pronouns. I know. I love it. But one thing I will say... Starfield does well is there are a ton of women in leadership positions. There's representation of gay people. There's representation of people of color. But it's like, especially seeing all the women in leadership, I was like, oh, sweet. I'm in a boardroom full of women CEOs. I'm, I'm liking this future. That's fine. Thank you, Starfield. Let's get back to talking about early access for just a second. So Baldur's Gate 3, I think one of the things that people talked about is, wow, we're treating the official release as the official release. And apparently there is something in the culture of games that's like, oh, well, don't release something in early access because it's people are going to assume that that's just the way it's going to be forever. And so I'm curious if this is... Now we need an addendum to the adage... Uh, from the Nintendo executive that said a delayed game is eventually good, but a bad game or a rushed game is bad forever. It's not true. It's not true anymore. And it hasn't been true for a while since developers have been able to roll out day one patches with their games. It's And it's day one patches followed by 1.03. You know, it's just like, I think No Man's Sky got it right. They released a game. They had something there. And that could have been an early access release. Absolutely. But it worked as a full release because that was the idea. They got people to pay for it. They were able to polish up exactly what they needed to. And now we have a a great world to play in. I I could see the timeline where No Man's Sky did the early access thing. But let's not forget like what happened is like No Man's Sky basically had a publishing deal with Sony. And it was really Sony being out there being like Sony being Sony. It's like when we talked about the Gran Turismo movie, got to market this, got to like fuel this to 11. This game is the most incredible thing you've ever seen. You've got millions of worlds and possibly like, it's insane. You can do anything with this game. And No Man's Sky got so much buzz that it couldn't possibly live up to that at launch. 
And I think that that's a whole other thing. We don't really see that happen to too many other games. I, maybe Cyberpunk was like partially that too. I and think I Cyberpunk think, seems yeah. to have ingoodened in a similar yep. way. Cyberpunk Definitely. has ingoodened. I would I would also argue Cyberpunk had a lot of good stuff at launch, but the yep. the narrative for a lot of people was that if you're playing on console, it stinks. And I wasn't playing on console. I was playing on Same. PC. And there was yeah, there's a lot of good Me, writing and a lot of good stuff in there. I was shocked. Well, I reviewed it for us and my review yeah. was like, yeah, it's worth the wait because I didn't have any of those issues. And I liked <laughs> it. Like, it's a pretty good story. You know, it's fine. It was a the, good this is the a combat weird... felt good. Like, what do you want? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> that was certainly a problem. Like, I think all the um, all the criticism against Cyberpunk at the beginning are totally valid. But it did yeah, make definitely. people lose sight of like the good that was actually there. And it does seem like that game has kind of uh, kind of jumped up. Uh, a lot. I think it's improved quite a bit, but the conversation has moved on because so much, so many things happen. And we're always on to the next thing. So and another thing in games is it's really hard to go back and like you know focus on things that we missed. And yeah. it's still and that, shitty to make people play full price for a broken game. It yes, is absolutely yeah. shitty. That's the sort of thing that takes UGC, as the marketing people say, to bring people back to a game that's already out and that we should be revisiting. But that is just a real dice roll on culture. Like, I don't think that you can really astroturf something like that, especially because gamers are very savvy when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. So in summation and in conclusion, Starfield... Eh, there are better versions of it. Go play Baldur's Gate, especially if you love D&D, especially if you love romanceable NPCs. Oh, goodness, it seems like there are a lot of them. Seems like you, can, you could do a lot of that. I, I will fun. say, though, for Game for Game Pass users, if you've already played Outer Worlds and Outer Wild, um, which a lot of people have, then I, I do think Starfield is worth a look. Just be like... You got to get you got to like cross a lot of garbage to get yeah. to the good stuff. But I do think there are some cool worthwhile things in there. I'm just disappointed that, you know, the, the narrative is so boring. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't quite make it uh, worthwhile to get there. So we've got Starfield and we're going to be talking about a bunch of things we've been playing as well. But this seems like a pretty big week news wise for games, too. Um, There's a report going around from Eurogamer and others that Nintendo has been showing off the Switch 2 two developers at Gamescom. Um, what was that, last week or just uh, last month? Um, we're also hearing reports that, you know, the very important developers who would need to be making Switch 2 games already have dev kits. And there aren't really many details beyond that. It seems like it is a souped-up Switch. It is a more powerful Switch. It is still a portable console hybrid type of thing. We just don't really have any ideas. Um, we're expecting it to maybe launch in late 2024, uh, it could potentially come earlier, but I just want to check in with you, Jess, because you you are a gaming reporter. Are you? Do you think it's about time for for a switch to? What would you like to see in a switch follow up? Yeah, I mean, all of this tracks from what we know of Nintendo, right? They they follow their own schedule. They're always releasing consoles on the off years, and it works out really well for them. Their consoles generally offer something completely unexpected, right? Or something, some new innovation that people For are like, worse, oh, that's yes. weird. Yeah, and then it <laughs> turns out being the standard, of course. Yeah, so the Switch 2, though, sounds a bit like, it's like the Tears of the Kingdom of of consoles for Nintendo. It's going to be the same thing, but better. The same thing, but a little bigger, souped up. Yeah, like you said, I I, I, I can't believe them. If, if, the, if the first thing was one of the best games ever made of all time, 
yes, just make it a little better. I will play that again, you know? So. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild that Nintendo finally figured that out, even with their, like, their software, right? Like, they've never really done a sequel like Tears of the Kingdom in terms of, like, just really doing the same thing, but a little different. Yeah, even um, Majora's Mask yeah. was, like, a very different game, a very different all type different. of game comparing. Yeah. Um, and that's what they what? do with their stuff. So, yeah, this is, but I'm actually really excited about the Switch, too. Yeah, I mean, it's been I, I remember this all so distinctly because I covered the Switch launch at Engadget, but I also remember covering the Wii U launch at uh, other places I've worked. And that was like, what, 2012? And I do remember just entering this mode and being like, oh, this is a disaster. It is very weird to see a company like Nintendo being like, oh, yeah, guys, we got all this stuff. You got this big tablet. You, people like tablets now. Look at the iPad uh, tablet for your games. OK, how about that? And um, I do remember trying to talk to Nintendo people at the time, being like, this is insane. This thing is too big. They wouldn't confirm the battery life at the time. It was like less than two hours. Like there were so many. I was like, it's like you're seeing a car crash going to happen. You're you're like, you know, oh, this car is like 50 feet away. You could avoid this. You could just like avoid this crash entirely. But it's Nintendo. And they're like, no, no, no. We know best. So I do think like Nintendo is not infallible i also loved the game the gamecube but i think the gamecube had a lot of problems too including that goddamn controller um they're they're kind of like they're a fascinating company though because they can very much like apple they do their own thing and they do what they want and often their impulses are creative rather than market driven and i do appreciate that in a company like nintendo even if we get a straight up switch successor like Hey, I'm still playing the Switch right now. I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom on an OLED Switch, and it looks amazing. And the things people can uh, okay, get running it, on the Switch. It looks yeah. amazing. It looks you can see the textures a little bit I mean, better. You can on see the, the textures. Screen. It looks amazing. Like I'm I'm also playing Tears of the Kingdom on my 120-inch screen mm -hmm. uh, via projector. And you know what? Uh the stylization of this game, even though it's running at 30 FPS. Stylized, why? Like style-wise, it still looks better than a lot of the generic open-world games we're getting these days, too. Like it, it, Nintendo just knows how to eke the most it can from this hardware. When it comes to the Switch, too, like yeah, people are just going to buy a more powerful Switch. I would love for them to just call it the Super Switch. I oh, think that would be cute. Be fun. Actually, that would be I cute. Would love but that. I think I think they have learned, especially after the Wii U naming confusion. Like mm. maybe don't mess with it. Maybe just like. Some people Switch are too. very dumb, and also it's parents and grandparents buying things for their grandkids. So, like, you gotta be super you gotta be Switch clear. is easy to get into your head. I don't know. I don't know if it is. I don't. Mm. As, as somebody do some who's testing. yeah, we'll yeah, do, I'm now, sure they're doing a lot of testing. They, yeah, they're absolutely doing market research right but, now. But uh, yeah. Wii U was very confusing for a lot of people, yes. and just in my experience helping people in IT, like it is very hard yes. to get some <laughs> things across if it's not like very specific. This is the sequel to this thing that existed before. Um, but anyway, it does seem like this will likely be a portable. Um, I think that's totally fine. Are there features missing? Like, it's going to be faster, obviously. It's going to do better graphics. Are there things you'd like to see in a Switch follow-up, Jess? Yes. Only because okay. I am still holding out for the Vita that will never come back. Oh, I want a rear you. touchpad. I want a rear touchpad, Nintendo. Give me really? something weird for my back fingers to do. Yeah. Mm. That's all I want. I, I see. I, I don't know. That's weird enough Jess for me. As the only <laughs> member of the rear touchpad club, just there alone. I in your loved clubhouse. it. I loved that thing. Are you kidding? It, it wasn't was cool. anything when you weren't using it. And then there for some very, games, yeah. you could make like little bubbles pop up. You could control <laughs> things. You could, you could like, pop a balloon. It was great. <laughs> it was cool. It was a cool idea. I don't. Mm, no. Okay, I don't that's know. not. That's not it. All right. Well, that's, that's not really. I'm thinking more like. Um, 
what what can we do with this form factor right we can still have a very powerful game like portable gaming system which by the way uh, look at the steam deck look at like what's happening with pc gaming portables right now um but we could also have this thing like maybe be more powerful when stocked maybe maybe have that dock be more than a dumb a dumb you know little output feed for the console itself the switch does get a little more powerful when stocked but i'm thinking we could we could probably like jack that up even more um there are features people were you talking, talking about, about like external graphics cards or something no, like that it doesn't have to be an external graphics card but it could be something like that just like a little extra power to unlock the uh, people are talking about like could be dlss or something like that nvidia's yeah. upscaling technology uh that chip doesn't need to work while it's in portable mode or like that capability can just sit quiet but if you dock it and you trigger and it's like, okay, we're going to do like, you know, uh, upscaling to 4k, uh, don't render in 4k. My God, I wish yeah, people no. would just stop doing that. That was the trade off for Starfield, by the way. Uh, they decided to go for 4k 30 FPS when you could, you could get higher frame rates. If you don't you know, people don't need all that resolution. Um, you could do something like that with a dock switch. Um, uh, maybe some games could also use the old switch. I think there are things like, they could there could be some cross compatibility there because we see how far the switch hardware can actually last like the next mario kart maybe there's a severely downscaled version that works on the original switch or something like that talk about a game that has existed forever by the way mario kart 8 launched on the wii u still playing still playing still still, playing. still thriving they just launched a new bundle yep. with the with Hell mario yeah. kart 8 um this is nintendo they don't have to play anybody else's game that's right so anyway well, yeah. Building off of that a little bit, one feature I would like to see is reliable cloud streaming mm, of capabilities. Mm -hmm. I just, like Nintendo just needs to Better figure out that yeah. network thing. Yeah, exactly. They need they need something to kind of because the Switch is a perfect cloud streaming machine. So uh, yeah, they just kind of need to lean into the stuff that's already working. You can point. buy a Switch Lite for the same price as the PlayStation Portal and play actual games on it and stream from the cloud. Can't even do that on the PlayStation Portal. Isn't that wild? I Damn know. you, Sony! Yeah. This is this is these are the things that get me really really annoyed. Okay, let's move on to a couple of games we've been playing. Jess, I saw you wrote down a couple. You want to start us off here? I did. Yeah. So I messed around a little bit with Remnant Two, and this is that like infinite loop kind of kind of game. It's it's it honestly just makes me want to play Returnal. Um, in in terms that was of some like good stuff, Returnal, yeah. dude, Returnal's great, and I still boot it up every now and then. So Remnant Two gets gets a, a mid recommendation from me, um, but the one that I am excited about is Viewfinder, and this is this like very chill, casual game, very pretty um, indie indie situation. Uh, where you take photos to manipulate the landscape and you take a photo and it becomes real in the world and you can walk across whatever bridge you just did or you can like take bits out of the scene and move them. It's it's a cool puzzle game. Very pretty. Um, I'm, I've had a lot of fun with it. So if you need something to chill with, that's a good one. Something to chill with. I'm just trying to think. There was... Super liminal, I think, is what you're thinking about because I'm thinking about super liminal. I've seen oh, cool. some videos of Viewfinder, and it really does seem like this is inspired, maybe a spiritual successor to super liminal. Stylistically, a little different, but but I see it. Let me see here. Uh, I've been playing a couple of things too, like Sea of Stars. I'm sure you've heard about it, Jess. Like this is the RPG that this indie RPG that is very Chrono Trigger inspired, and whenever somebody's like, "Yeah, our RPG is." It's a little bit like Chrono Trigger. Um, 
you could apply that to like 20 games at this point. But I think this is the first one that I've seen. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see. I directly see your inspiration here. And also it's trying to be a little better because it's an RPG featuring two characters with a battle system that is very Mario RPG-esque too. Like it's a little active. You can hit buttons to do extra hits. You can hit, you know, time buttons to defend a little better. Um, Story-wise, it seems fine. But I think the overall vibe of it is really cool and the artwork is incredible too. So I've been playing this with my daughter who we've been, we've been like sitting and playing some games together uh, before bedtime. I know that's not ideal screen time wise, um, but it's, it's like what the time has really allowed us for. So we've been playing Dave the Diver, which is really good. But Sea of Stars is the other one where she's like, she's getting into the art and the mechanics and like, she's just like liking the experience. So I, this is a great game to play together with your kid. I also want to shout out Sprawl. Have you heard of Sprawl, Jess? No, I can't say I have. This was one that I saw climbing the boards on Steam. Like sometimes I look to see like what what is a new game that people are really jumping onto. Sprawl is this sort of like um, it is a hectic FPS. I forget the exact name for that. Like it is very frenzy FPS, uh, similar to Doom 2016 or earlier games um, done in like a Quake 2, Quake 3-ish art style. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. It's just like you go around shooting stuff. The mechanics feel good. The movement feels good. The shooting is fantastic. Great soundtrack. So if you miss like old school FPS stuff and you've got a gaming PC, uh, maybe even the Steam Deck. This will probably run pretty well on the Steam Deck. Sprawl is worth uh, worth a play for sure. Ben, I know, I know you've been waiting to talk about this, but you have started Armor Core 6. I've also started Armored Core 6. You're probably a little further along than I am, but what are your, what are, what are your feelings about the Big Macs? Getting the robot, 621. Getting the robot, Shinji. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't care about Armored Core spoilers at all. I don't care about playing this game correctly. I have not gotten to Baltus yet. I'm playing this intermittently. I'm also playing this at my partner's house. So you know what? I have to pay attention to them. You know, I have to pay attention <laughs> to my girlfriend in order to, uh, you know, have the continued access to You can't be fully fully unleashed with your giant mech love here. Yes, know? yes. On top of that, we're also like getting ready for a trip next week. But that's another thing. So yes, I've been playing in and out. I am, let's say, maybe like halfway through the first chapter, maybe a little bit further through the first chapter, and I am loving it because each one of these missions in the early game is you just go in, you be an absolute menace, and you leave. And it, feel, it feels good because you're a big robot that can move fast when you need to, and you got a laser sword, and you, get, you can customize as much as you want. It's fantastic. The customization is incredible. I really like spending 15 minutes being like, should I use that head or that head? You know, okay, so this targeting chip is a little bit better. It, I have a lot of fun with that. I was saying before in the kind of like Armored Core preview episode a couple weeks ago that someone told me that this was like Gran Turismo, but mm -hmm. for mechs. That's, and I was like, perfect. actually, yeah. that sells it to me. I really like the tinkering aspect of those sorts of games. At the same time, the politics of this game are scary. <laughs> the the world that is happening, or it, like, it's a very bleak and cynical game. It is. A, which it is an extremely bleak and cynical game. You we are live like in a cynical world, folks. Yeah. You are like part of a bunch of mercenaries on this planet Rubicon trying to get their unobtainium, which in this game is called Coral. You are like 
working for this company and then in, in one mission and then working against that same company from the previous mission in the next mission. You are absolutely a hired gun. No one is nice to you in this game. They all call you dog. You're you basically a soldier meat. That's all you are. Yeah, you're basically yeah. an indentured servant slash slave. But I'm still having a lot of fun with it. <laughs> it's, it's one of... I, I think like it's it's from software. It is the you know it's the folks who the were souls doing uh, the souls people stuff, and those games aren't very hopeful. You know, <laughs> like the, there's a lot of like um, a lot of cynicism about humanity and where we are as a culture there. But yeah, I, I totally I, I'm feeling that too, Ben. I think that is very purposeful. I think it is definitely trying to talk about having a point of view, something that Starfield doesn't really feel like it has, although. It's not like that game totally shies away from politics either. Um, it's just just kind of fascinating to see this. So, Ben, you're digging it. Would you recommend it to somebody who's never played an Armored Core before? Like I've never played. Yes, I've never played an Armored Core before. I'm having a lot of fun. Like I said, you need to go in with the idea that what you are interested in is being a giant robot. I am. Why would you to- buy the giant robot game if you don't? Well, be a no, giant no. Robot, but what I'm know? saying is that I have no. Like, I have very little interest in, like, get good at this Mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. I will fully cheese some of the harder bosses. I will look up builds that people used to get through this. Because what I'm just trying to do is get to the next part of being an absolute menace of a giant robot. I mean, whatever it takes. It's from software. So, yeah. Yeah, They're, they're known for dropping an early boss that really challenges your skill level. Because... If you didn't learn the basics, like we set it up, we showed you all how parrying works. So if you didn't get it, you're you're screwed. You just do not get past this boss. So it seems like I have not gotten there yet in this game. Although I know a lot of people had trouble with the like the first big boss from the first mission, like the giant uh, helicopter thing. And it's like maybe I just watched too much Gundam. You know, I was like I, I was not afraid to be like um, I'm gonna laser sword your butt. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna like zoom in there because I think a lot of people were trying to dodge missiles and play defensively. I'm like no, no, no. I've got a laser sword. I can I can boost right to you and sword you in the face, and that seemed to work pretty well. Well, that's the um, thing yeah. with the Souls game. Like you yes. can't just be dodging; you have to be attacking too. And like that's the that's the challenge, and that's the 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 part that's like that keeps me away from playing Souls games. I'm not one of those people that wants to do the same fight twenty times to get it right. I'm more more like Ben. I might cheese a few. Um, but no, Armored Core sounds cool. Yeah, it really I think does. it sounds cool. I think you would dig it, Jess. But also, I feel like, have you done Elden Ring yet? Because I feel like you would be down with the Elden Ring. I did a little bit, but it, you know, it's just not for me. Like, you compare, if you compare Armored Core and the mech battles there to like D.Va from Overwatch for me, I might be able to grab onto that a little more. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to fully customize your D.Va, then yeah, this is Dude, the game I do for too. you. I really do. So as a final thought with Armored Core, I want to shout out a article in Polygon by the editor-in-chief Chris Plant. The title is, Struggling with Armored Core 6? Do the coolest thing possible. The first line of this article is, Two things can be true. I am bad at Dark Souls games. I beat Armored Core 6. And then it goes into talking about how the key to playing Armored Core is to do the most cool cinematic thing possible. And that'll probably help you get through the game. Yes. That's so great. What a great game. And what a great game that like, that's the conclusion that we come to. That's, that's perfect. That's a, (laughs) that's a focused design right there, folks. That's a focused design. That's also something when I used to play tabletop RPGs that used to get me in trouble because some DMs did not want to see that. (laughs) But you know, I think that is a good philosophy for gaming 
in general. So listen, this was a great episode uh, to have you on, Jess, because we got to wrap up some of this stuff. There's a lot of game stuff coming. You know, we still have some major titles coming this year. Is there anything you're super excited for? Or are you just like clearing clearing your backlog at this point? Oh, no, there's plenty coming. Um, I'm allowed to say that I'm playing Forza Motorsport the first uh, 90 minutes of that game. So we'll have a little preview on Monday, actually. How much um, menu tinkering is in that one? <laughs> you'll have to read my, my preview to find out. Um, I think you'll be happy, though. And then Alan Wake 2 is the next one that I am personally interested in that's coming in October. So I'll be reviewing that as well. Time to play that remake, which is on Game Pass. I believe. Yeah, seriously. So, yeah, go seriously. for it. All right. Thank you, Jess. Let's move on to some other news. And uh, we're, we're just going to bounce real quickly here because we spent a lot of time talking about games. But hey, the Pixel 8 Pro leaked again. And this was right on Google's site showing off uh, Google's own 360 degree simulator and as we said last week, it really does seem like Google is just just leaking this stuff to to get any sort of buzz as we are days away from Apple's next iPhone event. And Google has done this in years past and it seems like it's happening again. Jess, do you think this is a great marketing tactic? Just like just spoiling <laughs> your opponent's uh, events ahead of time, I guess. I guess. I mean, do they think that we think it's real like that that it's actually oh, do they think, think they're real. being sneaky yeah. i guess so i guess maybe yeah people who just see it pop up they they're like oh, okay it leaked uh it's very transparent right so i, think I guess it's working point, whatever yeah even even <laughs> the teens uh eager for phone leaks which do they still exist i don't know this is not the same as it was 10 years ago uh but even those folks are like yeah yeah we get it google come on come on um just kind of hilarious like i do think it is very it is getting a little desperate from google's part but hey it looks like a pixel 8 it has the bar it has more cameras there were other like leak details um i think past leaks said it has a 50 megapixel main camera with 50 percent uh more light capabilities it can let in more light and a 64 megapixel ultra wide sony camera so big big cameras on that big metal band on the back Otherwise, it looks like a Pixel phone. So I don't think Google is stretching themselves design-wise here. So yeah, we will be hearing more about that in early October when that Google event hits. Also in the news, um, if you're in New York, uh, you may be noticing that Airbnb uh, is is basically being cut out of the city pretty much. Uh, there's been a long-term battle between the city of New York and uh, Airbnb when it comes to having people rent out their apartments or having people just you know, uh, landlords who decided to turn some of their apartments into Airbnb rentals. Um, a lot of people have said, and the city has argued, like this is uh, basically contributing to the living, the housing crisis in New York. Like rents are were already too high. Airbnb is pushing it higher because people can make more money with short-term rentals versus long-term rentals. Uh, so anyway, as of this week, uh, there are new rules enforced in New York. And if you are looking for an Airbnb in New York City, your options are probably going to be very, very limited. Um, Airbnb hosts will have to register with the city. Um, they will have to be present on the property. So that's more likely meant for owners of a building or owners of a townhouse or something that has an extra room for people. Uh, they can only rent out uh, to two guests at a time. And uh, what else? I mean, th those are kind of the basic things. Typically, Air when people choose an Airbnb, they want to treat it like a hotel. And you probably won't be able to do that. Do you have any feelings? Like, uh, Ben, you are close to New York. So, yeah, as the only New York exists? renter in yeah. this chat right now, I am of two minds on it. Because 
hotels in the New York City area are ridiculously expensive. And you I, better believe that the yeah. hotel lobby was big behind this Airbnb ban. This is great for hotels. So yeah. big question is, is the enemy of my enemy my friend? Is this going to open up more whole apartments for long-term renters? And man, is it's just so complicated. Every time people talk about housing policy in this city, it's, you know, should it be denser? Should it be that certain regulations be loosened in order to make it easier for really old, dilapidated apartment units that are not currently occupied to be updated and then occupied? It's a mess. I can't, Even more yeah, Airbnb, I can't, like this was a disaster, so... Yeah, I can't parse all of it. The only thing I can do is advocate the Engadget listeners in New York City to support Councilperson Chai Osei's measure to make landlords pay broker's fees and put a cap on broker's fees in New York City because this is crazy. I have paid so many broker's fees. It's awful. Yeah. Also, because this is a podcast, I need to mention that Chai Osei is the son of legendary podcaster Reggie Combat Jack Osei. <laughs> R.I.P. Okay. Wow. We, we are already at a point where we have like a spawn of legendary podcasters. So, wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. The second generation of the podcasters. Second generation. Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> but anyway, um, let me just say, like I was booking, uh, I have to cover the surface event in New York, so was looking for a place to stay hotels that week thanks to fashion week were all six hundred dollars plus a night everything in manhattan so I, I found an airbnb in my old neighborhood it is apparently a kingdom hearts super fans airbnb because there's like keyblades on the wall and stuff they designed it to be like a kingdom hearts room i was like okay i can work in the kingdom hearts room i won't die here um yeah, that, that's where I'm staying for the surface event. But uh, I'm, I, I guess I'm happy that I'm able to do that. And I hope that person wasn't like taking away an apartment from somebody else. But it's it's complicated. It's staying in New York, bringing a family to New York. My family and I stayed uh, at one floor of an owner's building a couple of months ago, too. And that was a good experience. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't fully know like how that deals with the New York housing issues. Also, as somebody who lived there for a decade... Yeah, these problems existed for so much longer before Airbnb. But anyway, let's talk about some gadgets. The UE Epic Boom. Logitech announced the UE Epic Boom, which is a new wireless speaker that falls between the Mega Boom and the Hyper Boom. You guys may remember the Hyper Boom because that was the like $450 thing. Uh, giant party speaker from Logitech. And I love that thing. It's super loud. Sounds great. The Epic Boom is $350. It is kind of like a double mega boom it looks like according to photos and um hands-on from john turi and engadget so it weighs about 4.3 pounds it's 350 bucks which i think is a lot especially compared to um the next speaker we're going to be talking about but hey i really like logitech's ue speakers if you want something that is powerful and very versatile and functional this is definitely one worth checking out. Um, but also, this week, Sonos announced the Move 2 speaker. And this is the second version of their portable speaker. This is going to be $450. But the big difference is it has double the battery life as the last model. And um, also, it has two tweeters. So it's basically stereo sound in a little box. Uh, we have not heard this yet. It sounds very cool. I have the original Sonos Move that I got on sale. And I love that thing because it can be a great speaker in my family room. And then I can bring it to the backyard and can fill the entire backyard with like enough sound. So great for parties and stuff too. 
Samsung also unveiled their largest 8K TV yet. It is a 98-inch model. The Neo QLED 8K will likely cost around $10,000. I'm just saying this is a PSA. People do not buy 8K TVs. I don't know why these companies are still making 8K TVs, and I still see them being sold in some places, but literally no reason to buy an 8K TV. The content is not there. They're all relying on AI upscaling to uh, maybe see slightly better quality than 4K. But by all accounts, your eyes will not see it. So go OLED, go mini LED, go literally anything else but these AK TVs. Can I ask you, yeah. since you know this space, who mm -hmm. is buying an 8K TV? Is it, is it just a bunch of rich people? Yeah. Is anyone buying 8K TV? I don't even know. I, I have not yeah. seen the stats. Yeah. I'm sure there are some market research, research out there. I have not done that digging yet. Um I think maybe rich people and people with too much money and maybe somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make the ultimate theater room. I'm going to be ready for 8K and good on you for trying to be future proof, but it's not worth the money, especially when the content is not there. And we don't even know if these AK TVs will be compatible with like future stuff you'll actually need in an AK set. My thing is, um, I'm just going to say it because it's always good to say this on tech shows. I don't know if we'll ever really need 8K in the home. It just it does not make sense when 4K is more than sharp enough for for the vast majority of screen sizes. Like not until you go above 120 inches will you really see that difference with 8K. So yeah, I just I don't know if it's super necessary. We've got some other news too, a little more serious news. Um, let me see here. Mozilla had a really great report as part of their privacy not included project that uh, explains why cars are data privacy nightmares. So that's worth uh, worth reading. It just seems like car companies are tracking all sorts of things, including your gender, gender, and potentially sexual habits. We don't know how they're getting this information. Even uh, if you're not doing stuff in the car? Even if you're not doing stuff in the car. Like they, they have access <laughs> to things. I don't know what yeah, that means. How, like, how that, are that's they basically supposed what to know? Uh, go read the Mozilla report, because it's not clear how they're getting some of this information. But it may be like... Um, you being targeted for other ads if they're able to detect that through their apps or something if you travel um, to a certain area of town that's the yeah. only thing it can like i don't understand don't i'm know. very suspicious of yeah. my rav4 now i don't i don't like this <laughs> i think are, yeah well. are they gonna are, is there going to be like some car version of physiognomy where they assume that like a larger bottom with a slightly higher body temperature might be male and know. so if there's so if you're just well, listen, driving around getting... your bros are they going to assume some things about your Truly. sexuality they're getting yes, cameras of course they're getting cameras in they're getting infrared to like detect like if your eyes are actually on the road so no. as a part of that i don't know like the thing is like we don't know these companies aren't doing anything with this actual data but there may be some data that they're collecting we're not sure if this stuff is encrypted we're not sure what's happening with it it just seems like car companies are very bad about gathering this data in terms of like storing it and handling it so something to keep an eye out for probably right now it's not going to make a difference in terms of like which car company you support um but yeah, just be careful what you sign into when you get a new car. So the U.S. is also kicking off its first monopoly trial against Google. So, Dev, you were the expert on this. You're, you've you read a bunch of articles about this. Is this where the rubber meets the road for Lena Khan's philosophy of monopoly means that you're touching too many things? I mean, it is. Um, I think they're kind of testing it. This is not coming through the FTC. This is a Department of Justice. But... 
it it is a very similar thing, right? Like, so the case here is that um, yeah, the over the past several years, the U.S. government has been trying to make the case that Google, by making deals with Apple and other companies to place itself within their services and their operating systems, that that was basically putting Google in turning Google into a monopoly, and because of that, like they had abused their platform by doing so. I don't know if the case from the government here is very, very strong. Is the thing because this is not as this is not like when the U.S. government was going after Microsoft in the '90s for saying you're just putting my Internet Explorer front and center, and you're making it kind of tough for other browsers to, to survive. The big deal was the Internet Explorer was free and baked into Windows '95 and '98, and Netscape Navigator you had to pay for. People don't remember this, but Netscape was like thirty bucks. I do remember this. And even before that, it was Mosaic. Um, but you had to pay for it. And basically, by having a free browser, Microsoft killed the browser market completely. They went to trial. They were found um, guilty of that. And like there, there were all sorts of things Microsoft had to do, right? Microsoft, it took a decade before the actual repercussions actually happened. But I believe they paid a huge fine. And they also had to have this like selector pop up, especially in Europe, I believe. Uh, but they had to have a selector pop up that made you aware that other browsers were available and basically help you get to those other browsers. That was way too late. That was after Chrome was out there and actually started taking things over. It was after Firefox was out there, the sort of successor to Netscape and Mozilla's stuff. Um so, yeah, I don't know if the government has a strong case here, but we're going to be watching it. This is a 10-week trial. There is no jury here, so it's also going to all depend on the judge's judgment at the end of this in terms of what happens to Google. But things like this is where um, in the 80s, uh, AT&T was broken up into several smaller companies because they were found to be too powerful and too dominant in this field. Um, I think Google search still accounts for 90 – Google sells 90% of the search market. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if search is necessarily the best thing to fight Google against, too. There is a separate uh, suit from the government against Google's ad business, which I think that I think may the be ad more, case is a lot stronger. That mm -hmm. may be more dangerous, yeah, for Google. Definitely. And I've heard so many things about how Facebook and Google eat up something crazy like Please don't quote me on this, but it could be like three of every $4 on the online ad market. It's ridiculous. And this is part of what has been killing like independent websites. It's because you can't make money on banner ads. You can't make money on a lot of the more traditional way of um, advertising. That's why you're seeing so many editorial websites, especially go the wire cutter route and try to make money through Amazon affiliate links. Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, full disclosure, like we are doing that too with some of our product recommendation posts. So that's a thing you need to do to survive on the internet. I do wonder how this is going to affect things like Google, like YouTube, because I do think YouTube has such a dominant hold on us as a culture. There aren't really many other like popular video sites, like maybe TikTok. If you're looking Vimeo. for a different type of experience, yeah. yeah. But mm -hmm. in terms of like, hey, you want to produce like a nice looking show, Vimeo's kind of died. We had talked about that a couple yeah, months ago. It has. Um, I, I could see the government being like, okay, well, allow other ad, you know, advertisers into YouTube that aren't part of your platform. Allow allow that to happen because you are so powerful here. There is no way for anybody else to ever make a competing video format or video site that's as big as this. So there could be things like that happening. And I think some of that is warranted. Like Google has had unchecked uh, success for so, so long. 
uh, and the government has not really been in a place to really stop it or do anything about it. So anyway, we'll be following this trial. Stay tuned. Ben, you dropped this news um, from 404 Media, by the way. I just want to shout out like those folks. Uh, those are the former motherboard uh, vice technology site folks who splintered off and basically have started a media co-op. Um, 404 Media, check them out. I think it's, is it 404media.co? Uh, not dot .com. Not .com. But you could, pretty much all their stories are like really cool and interesting. And the one you highlighted here is that they have found that an AI 3D modeling company, Kaidem, is using human artists to generate output and not just its magical AI tool, right? Yeah. So this gets into a personal theory I've had, which is that there are going to be a lot of quote-unquote AI companies in the next couple of years that are literally just going to be Mechanical Turks. Mechanical Turk being that thing from a long time ago when someone said that they made a machine that will just play chess. This is long before the computers. But it turns out that there was just some guy hiding inside the machine making the chess moves. I always like that story, by the way, but yeah. So similar thing, you can just use AI as a curtain and then say, don't look behind that curtain, that's proprietary code, and hide a bunch of actual people. So this company said that it was going to take 2D drawings and make them into 3D models in 15 minutes or less. And the company's actual tech produced 3D models that were like really low quality and just kind of like digital clay blobs, basically. So they started hiring quality assurance engineers, and they were hiring them from all over the world, one, so that they didn't have to pay all that much, and two, so they could have 24-7 on-call folks to fix Kaidem's messed up 3D renders. Uh, 404 Media found LinkedIn profiles of folks working from Kaidem in Argentina, England, Indonesia, Ethiopia, India, Greece, the Czech Republic, Colombia, Spain. That's a lot. One source claimed that Kaidem hired 3D artists around the world and paid them as much as $1 to $4 per model from users that requested them. And so this was corroborated later on by another job post for a freelance 3D artist at Kaidem, and they were looking for applicants that could produce low-quality 3D assets from 2D images in 15 minutes, like literally just saying the quiet part out loud. After this article was published, Kaidem's website changed some of their verbiage, saying that there would be humans helping out. It just feels bad to me. It, it, it feels, feels bad. I do, I do want to <laughs> say a couple of things here. I do think in every AI startup, and even when we use AI for stuff like transcription, like you gotta go, you gotta go in and fix the like fix the issues. So like I I have to go in and like edit words and things are misconstrued uh, when I do. I use uh, my on Word Online's AI transcription, which works pretty well. If you have a good quality audio, check it out, folks. Um, I even wrote an article about it in Gadget. Um, but I, every company has to do this sort of assurance. The question is, how much of the work was from these humans versus the actual AI model? And I, we, we need to see more. I'd love to hear this company actually fully respond to this because it seemed like they were just kind of brushing off 404 at this point, right? Well, 
And it's like, it's not even that different from like USA Today recently had to update a bunch of articles, like high school sports scores and and stuff, because all these were AI generated and they were filled with errors. Like this is something we've seen time and really time boring. again, right? Yeah, they were not They're really also boring time. and they're, yeah. they're not well written. And as you said, like even transcription, I use Otter AI transcription, Otter's which is great. also very good. Um, you can record, you know, live audio and it transcribes it right in front of your face. It's awesome. Um, but yes, it's filled with errors and it just totally misses the point sometimes. And it says the opposite. It's, it so has so many problems it. with homophones. You have too. to go through mm-hmm. it. Yes, it mm-hmm. really does. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the really galling thing about this is that so many of these companies can say, quote unquote, AI, then they can say that they have quality control engineers in order to maybe help train their machine learning um, data set or to help like grow the data set when really what they're doing is taking in money from customers, having people do it, and then hoping, just hoping that eventually their tech will get good enough so that they can lay off the people. Potentially, potentially, yeah. That's, but that's literally just a like artist for hire company. You're not an AI company until you actually have AI stuff. I don't like, I don't. And I want to be clear about this story. Like, I think they, the thing is like this company has funding from VCs. So somebody, somebody has had to see the tech actually work. Like before they even had these humans doing it, not that much funding to be honest. Like it's 150,000 euros. So not a ton. They have seed funding at this point, but I think what's happening is people are making like very basic AI models and then slowly improving it with these humans things. Because um, here's the other thing. An AI model doesn't work by magic, right? It is trained upon the data that's already being inputted in there. So part of what they're doing uh, could also be like using these humans fixing these things to make the model better over time. It's still shitty. I just want to be clear about I'm not saying like, I, I think we need to be clear. I, I It's not like they may have no algorithm at all. It's most likely just very bad. And also you're dealing with inputs. Like is somebody like doing a bad squiggly of a tree and then expecting the AI model to deal with it? Like that part, we don't know. There's so much we don't know here, but this is crummy. This is like these companies, they got to be more clear about how they're using humans. I think that's the ultimate thing here. And they can't keep making claims that we know just are not possible with AI at this stage. Like it's just too obvious, guys. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, slow down. Mm -hmm. But anyway, check out 404 Media. I love these folks. I'm listening to their podcast right now. Uh, the the top news on their site right now is Andreessen Horowitz funds an uncensored AI that will tell you how to kill yourself. So that's the world we're living in right now is literally the suicide bots in uh, in Futurama. Like it's it's horrifying. Uh, 404 Media is great. 404media.co. Uh, support those folks if you can, because they're they're out there on their own, like just running a media site, which is the dream and kind of cool. So I think it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to mention, Ben, about this? Because I know you had a lot of thoughts. It's just yeah, frustrating. That's frustrating. It. Be wary. Absolutely. Anytime you see AI attached to anything, just like, you know, red flag, raise a red flag and be like, oh, so what are you talking about here? What's actually going on? Because usually people will do that to get more funding, to get more users. And uh, yeah, we don't know if it's actually a fully baked product. Ask a lot of clarifying questions about Always. their workflow always and look them up look up like before you subscribe to any company before you start using a product look up reviews and see the coverage and i think this sort of coverage is not gonna be great for kaiden let's move on to what we're working on and just anything you want to mention you already gave us a glimpse at some of your games anything else coming um yeah the so forza motorsport is coming in hot and then i'm working on a story about 
gender in esports. And I think it's a very important conversation. And uh, yeah, so hopefully you'll be seeing that on the site uh, this month or in the coming months. An article that will certainly get you many, many just flowery emails yeah, that, of people loving you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm very used to that. I'm not not worried about the trolls, but it, it's an important enough conversation that I'm willing to ride that wave for a while. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Jess. Uh, yeah, hopefully the guy who got so angry about pronouns in uh, in Starfield, <laughs> the British guy. Oh man, who's getting divorced? So apparently, I wonder why. Mm. Wonder why? Hmm, Seems weird. like a cool dude. Uh, in terms of what I'm working on, I'm finishing up my review that LG, LG Ultra Gear 49-inch gaming monitor that I was talking about a while ago. Um, I'm also doing the podcast on this right now. Uh, it is a very cool gaming monitor, but not all games support ultra widescreen. So Starfield does not. Starfield gives me black borders. You know what game does support fully widescreen? No Man's Sky. No Man's, like pure, immersive No Man's Sky. Um, that's always like, yeah. It's just funny how that is working out once again. Let's move on to our pop culture picks for the week. Jesse, you got anything you want to shout out like that you've been reading or watching that you want people to check out? Yeah, actually. So we did a hitting the books the other day um, because I sent in to Andy, who does our, our hitting the books series. Um, I sent in this book by Pippin Barr, who is a game developer I've interviewed a few times. He makes these like short philosophical like Greek mythology based games, um, but they're very funny. He did one about Maria Marina Abramovich, the artist who just like stared at people in the museum for a while. Not just, there's a larger point. I actually thought it was a very poignant piece of art, <laughs> but he wrote a book. He wrote a book um, that is basically why we haven't made the Citizen Kane of gaming. And it talks about um, how, how games are made from a very basic level. Um, the book is called The Stuff Games Are Made Of. It's pretty short. He's a he's a fun guy, fun writer. So if you can find that somewhere, hitting or not hitting the books, uh, the stuff games well, are made you can of read the, by Pip the and segment. Yeah. Read our segment on hitting the books, but also check out that book. Sounds very cool. Thank you, Jess. I want to shout out a couple of things. Um, I'm a big fan of Victor Lavelle, the horror writer. And one of his books is being turned into an Apple TV Plus series called The Changeling, starring um, Keith Stanfield. I love Keith Stanfield. I love Victor Lavelle. And this is a really fascinating, um, it's sort of like um, supernatural fairy tale horror quite a bit because it is about a disappearing child, but it's also about generations of love and generations of trauma it is very novelistic in how it kind of goes over the story jess i think you would actually really like this because it's it's a beautiful story and it's about like um all powerful forces of love and also curses and also you know the power of new york city which is something i always appreciate and the power of lucky stanfield who i think is pretty cool so yeah check out the changeling it's definitely worth a watch i think a lot of these apple tv plus series have been kind of middling this one is really really worth checking out also want to shout out Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is that other Star Trek show, um, which people don't talk about that much. Uh, that's not Discovery, but we've done a couple of reviews here. I just want to say season two is incredible, as a lot of people have been saying, especially season two, episode two, which deals with a, uh, a court trial that is just so well done, so well written, so well acted. If you are into Star Trek or if you're not into Star Trek, I actually think Strange New Worlds is a good jumping off point because you meet a lot of these characters. It's very careful about how it introduces you into this world, and it's a lot of fun. So season two of Strange New Worlds is fantastic. Check it out, folks. That's on Paramount+. Plus. 
Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. And the podcast is produced by me, Ben Elman. Hey! You can find Devendra online at... I'm still at Devendra on Twitter. I'm at Devendra MS on social. I'm at Devendra at Blue Sky as well. You can find Jess at... I am on threads and Instagram, Jess L. Condit. And you can find Ben at literally just benelman.wave. That's dot W-A-V at gmail.com. Don't try to find me on the internet. Email us at podcast at engadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and listen on literally anything that gets podcasts. Support RSS. Goodbye. Thanks, folks.